0: Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy world. Welcome back, Biblical World listeners. I am Kyle Keimer, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Mark Jansen, and we are going to be speaking with none other than Professor Steve Ortiz at Lipscomb University. So Mark, how you doing this
1: morning? I'm good Kyle. it's great to be back with you. It's been a been a little bit and uh, yeah I'm really glad we've got Steve on. I work with Steve. He's actually the director of the Lanier Center for Archaeology here at Lipscomb. He's sort of one of my supervisors so we'll have to be nice to him. <laughs> um, and he's also obviously a professor of archaeology. He directs what was under the Tandy Institute the excavations at Gezer. And uh, now he also is the co-director at Tel Berna, which is Pride Biblical Libna. Been digging for, what, 30 years, over 30 yeah. years, and focuses a lot on the archaeology of David and Solomon, Iron One and II uh, time periods, the transition there, and the relationships between Judah and the Philistines. And I would also say state formation, too. So there's a lot, of, a lot of specializations there. And I know, Steve, you wear a lot of hats, but welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Well, today's going to be fun. We're going to be talking about Iron Age Gates, which I know I'm pretty excited about this. I'm sure the listeners are as well. There is so much that can be said about these features, and there's a lot to be debated about them as well. I mean, if you know anything of the history of the field, the so-called Solomonic gate debate is is one that has raged for good 60 years and actually continues even today. And so we're going to touch on some of that. But before I do, Steve, remind me, I think you also have a kind of fame to claim in archaeology. Were were you weren't you the one who found the Akron inscription, the famous Akron inscription back in the day? Yes, yes, that
2: was found in my field when I was working at Tom McNe. In fact, that publication just came out last year, finally. I actually wrote that the field report for the publication before I wrote my dissertation. <laughs> and now it's finally you know, getting <laughs> ready to retire. Go. Yeah, over 30 years. So. Welcome it's, to archaeology, yeah, yeah. everyone. <laughs>
0: But remind me, wasn't it one of those classic instances, too, where you, you saw it the last day of the, the season? And it was, as is usual, you find it kind of half buried in the bulk, last day of the dig, last moment. No, of the...
2: no, we found it. Oh, it was okay. the last season. Last season. Okay. And it was a work stone. And I kept telling the supervisor, the particular square, half the square was very rich. It was like the back room of the temple. And so it was just filled with artifacts. So naturally, they kept working there because every day they'd be pulling out whole vessels. (laughs) And I go like, you have to dig the whole square on this other side. Now, we knew that this part of the temple was robbed out from the Roman period and the Persian period. And so they knew it was just going to be nothing. But I kept saying, you have to work this stone. And so the whole season, I kept bothering the supervisor. And I'd sometimes go in there and I'd pick and I'd get it down. And so it was toward the end, I said, look, this has to all be stratified. And we got it down probably about 30 centimeters. Now, at Miknei, we worked after lunch because they sprayed the fields, the kibbutz. They sprayed the fields. So we'd work from like 1 till 7 or 8 at night. So it was during the day you couldn't see anything. And we go, like, okay, when the sun goes down, we'll, we'll get better shade and we can see. But I can tell that there was something on it. And we called the Uh, photographer over and he had the photo shield and sure enough once we put that shield on it we saw writing like three lines this was way back then we didn't have cell phones we had (laughs) walkie-talkies so I got on the walkie-talkie and I called down to the camp and I told Cy and Trudy that stone I kept telling you about is going to be an inscription we already have like three lines and so and so we spent that you know basically work around the clock at night to get that stone out and we and so the rest is history. It was it's been a famous Ekron inscription. Nice, nice. So now you lead digs. What if one of your grad students was like, "No, we got to finish this square." <laughs> yes. Yeah, but it was found the last season, and so that was the joke that you know. But by then, the low chronology and the um, the Taudan inscription being a fake was was big. So when we started excavating it, we actually had uh, video cameras. We're barely starting to use them. So we videotaped the whole thing to prove that this was not a plant, that we didn't make this up, that this was coming out of the field. We had probably like three or four hours of excavations of this um, coming out in the Ekron Temple.
0: I bet that is some <laughs> riveting three to four hours of video to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Just, you know, you know. We are not planting the inscription. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, digging yeah.
0: It out. Well, you mentioned the low chronology. Let's, um, let's uh, talk a little bit about that because it, Intersects with a lot of work you've done, particularly as one of the the directors at Gezer and some of your work there. Even though you weren't working specifically in you know the the gate area per se, which was excavated uh, previously by by Dever's expedition, um, but you guys were working right next to that and expanding that area, and you really filled a filled in our understanding of the the stratigraphy of Gezer quite a lot and. Maybe say a little bit about what your finds were at Gezer first, just as a, a contextualizing statement, and then we'll, we'll turn to the low
2: chronology and what exactly that, that is. Well, at, at Gezer, Gezer's been well excavated, but we wanted to get um, a series of cities. As you know, we, we use pottery to date everything, but pottery shifts over time. It's relative dating, it doesn't give you naturally absolute dates. There's regionalism, and so it's it's very complex to look at material culture, and so I'll get to the little chronology debate. But because of that, we wanted to get a good sampling of desert, uh, particularly from um, the Iron Age cities, and so that's that was our goal for ten seasons. Sam Wolf, my partner in crime, co-director, we spent time uncovering the history, and basically we went. We excavated the city from the Late Bronze Age, where destruction, all the way to the Assyrian destruction. And we have this series of cities built on top of each other. So we get like a nice picture of, of the site of Gezer. Right.
0: So we're talking basically like end of the 13th century all the way through the 8th century, and you've got a nice sequence. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then how do we connect what you found um, with what, what Deaver had found uh, earlier,
2: well, we personally dug between the famous gate at Gezer, their field three, Hebrew Union College's excavations, that was already exposed. So we dug the area between field three, the gate, and they had another domestic area, field six. And so we connected those two two fields. And that's what we dug. So that's how we, we're connecting with the earlier excavations with the new excavation so we can tie in everything. I actually learned that technique from when I dug with David Yashishkin at Lachish because he had the old Starky Oga Tufno. And so when they put their excavation squares, they try to make sure that they somehow touch the previous one so that we can tie in all the work. And so I did that when we got back together. I, I try to make sure that we can tie in what we did with what, what Bill Deaver did in his team.
0: Which, which is a really good methodological point as we think about just the process of archaeology, because so many of these sites have been excavated by previous expeditions, some of which took place you know two generations ago or even earlier. And so you want to establish a base point by which you can then refine our understanding. And if you just open up a random square in the middle of a site that's not connected to a previous excavation, you run into the challenge then of trying to establish not only your stratigraphy, but then how that's going to connect with what they found, which usually is given in terms that we don't use today or might have been refined uh, more so by uh, subsequent finds. And so it's a a challenging thing, but it makes a lot more sense to connect the two dots and work from what is known to what is unknown.
2: Yeah. Well, for example, at Gezer, the the McAllister excavations, they had eight strata, so eight major cities. When Deaver worked there in the sixties and seventies, they had twenty six cities. <laughs> so you can see the difference in the refinement of, you know, of our stratigraphy. Our stratigraphy pretty much matches with Deaver. So, you know, the last thirty years we're pretty much most sites are are pretty tight in terms of finding sites, you know. I mean, you know, the connections. So Deaver, if you're listening, he didn't add fifty cities
1: to it. <laughs> <laughs> So let's go now as we sort of transition to the gates and and get into kind of the local knowledge, maybe as we go, but how do we get to the Solomonic gate? Why are they called that? And sort of what's within the field, like debated about that. Why is that contentious?
2: Well, it's actually, um, it's part of the dating, but it it wasn't necessarily the, um, looking at Solomon. It was Yigo Yadin came up with this connection. And it's kind of like the classic biblical archaeology, where you take a Bible verse, and you have the archaeological data, and it connects it. And so you, you've had these gates. Megiddo had one, you know, the German excavations, you know, exposed it. Yadin dug it. Uh, McAllister had a similar gate at Gezer, but because it was rebuilt in the Hellenistic period, he called it the Maccabean Castle. And then Yadin excavates that Hatzor, and they have a similar type of gate structure. We'll get into the gate structures themselves. And Yadin noticed that, hey, these gates are pretty similar. There must be the same architect or the same architectural plan, i.e., some type of centralized authority. And we have the one verse in First Kings nine fifteen and sixteen where it says Solomon did this and this, and he fortified Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And Yadim you know, postulated Gezer probably has one of these gates. It's under the Maccabean castle. And sure enough, when the Hebrew Union College excavations under Dever went and excavated it, they found this type of gate. And so it became the classic example of biblical archaeology where archaeology quote-unquote proves or illustrates a biblical text. And so it's in all the textbooks, all the major textbooks, all the the lore of biblical archaeology. It's, you know, Yadin's theory. And so that's been, you know, every biblical archaeologist has studied that. They've learned that. And, you know, within archaeology, we're trying to reconstruct history. So it's nice when you can get different cities and their plans in in a historical continuum with other cities. And so it kind of brought together Khadzor, Megiddo in the north with Gezer down in the south. And then eventually you have um, the assumption that, okay, now we got a historical continuum. So all the pottery found at Megiddo, Khadzor and Gezer should match up. And that gives us this timeline. We can debate, you know, when Solomon built the gates, but we kind of have a good, Time frame with them just basically um, biblical chronology, end of the 10th century when Solomon would have done this. The debate comes up when we start discussing the, the pottery.
0: Now, before we get to the pottery, let me just add a contextualize, and you can correct me if I'm I'm wrong. But at the time when these gates were were excavated, and Yadin was kind of coming up with this idea we didn't have any other really good examples of Iron Age gates excavated still. I mean, you you had a similar one from Ashdode, which I believe was excavated later in the 70s, but it made a lot of sense at that time that this is there is a unified uh, design to these. And, and of course then, if you do bring in the pottery, at least as it was understood in those times, you're gonna date it to the 10th century. And so it did give Yedin's idea that these are quote-unquote Solomonic, a good amount of, of credence back in in that time period.
2: Yes, and, and at that point, you had um, at least at Megiddo and Gezer, you have these gates that have chambers, and the earlier one, i.e. the Solomonic one, had six chambers, and then the later one, they got rid of two of the chambers, and it became a smaller gate, a four chamber gate, and so that also became okay. If you have a four chamber gate, it's you know divided monarchy. They have a six-chambered gate. It's United Monarchy. And then, as he said, since then, we've started finding a lot of other gates, and it doesn't fit the pattern. So now we have four-chambered gates that are earlier than six-chambered gates and some that don't have it. And, and as he said, back then, you, when you only have three gates, you got a nice theory. <laughs> and then when you start to have 20 gates, <laughs> then the theory doesn't hold up. And we're seeing that now that that... Uh, Six and four chambered are not necessarily chronological. And
1: I think, too, maybe it's helpful for listeners to know that you'll see the literature just referred to them as number chambered gates a lot now. Like if you were to just do a Google search, you wouldn't necessarily only see the term Solomonic gates. Are there any other terms by which they would be known if they were researching
2: this? Uh, Just the six chambered gates, four chambered gates, Solomonic gates, the um. Iron Age gates.
0: So then, tell us a little bit. You started to mention the pottery, and that this was one of the the, the challenges, kind of connected to understanding these gates as Solomonic. Tell me a little bit about, or t- I should say, tell the listeners a little bit about the um, the kind of changes in the pottery that we see, or that Yadin was seeing, that would allow him to connect it to the to Solomon in the tenth century. And how have we then refined this understanding in previous generations, and I should say, subsequent generations?
2: Well. By then, Albright's work at Tell bet kind of established the ceramic chronology that most biblical archaeologists used. There were some refinements. Uh, naturally, Krish, um redefined the Babylonian destruction and the Assyrian destruction. So you have Lakrish II, the Babylonian destruction, Lakrish three, the Assyrian destruction. And this is kind of how archaeologists kind of get these broad pictures of, of pottery. So now we can look at all the Assyrian destructions and look at the pottery and say, okay, this is the type of pottery that we find in the 8th century. This is the type of pottery we find in the 7th century. And for the Solomon Gates, this is the type of pottery we find in the 10th century. Just for the uh, David and Solomon, you have red slip and burnish becoming more popular. But red slip and burnish goes all the way to the early Bronze Age period, <laughs> Middle Bronze Age period. So every period has their type. You know, it's just a type of decoration, uh, but it becomes prevalent at this point. The thing that set it off was um, when we're looking at other sites that don't maybe don't have gates or the pottery, and Finkelstein comes up with his low chronology model in the late 80s, early 90s. And then this basically shifts everything. And so once he said, look, I'm simplifying the argument here. But you have northern sites of Samaria and Samaria, their ninth century pottery looks similar to 10th century pottery. And so he started saying, you know, all these sites that we've been calling 10th century might actually be ninth century. And so you started to have this questioning of do we have our typology set and perhaps we can change the, the chronology. And all of a sudden, you have two schools of thought, you know, Finkelstein or the Tel Aviv school, which is like, yes, we should move everything down to the ninth century. It actually started earlier with, you know, some of Yushishkin's work at Lachish um, and some of the Tel Aviv, you know, other people looking at the pottery. But just to simplify it, it's like, yes, it is hard to find ninth century pottery and 10th century pottery. They both have red slip. They both have some of the same bowls. They both have... Um, and and it's more like um, any type of material culture if you have, um, you know, let's say uh, records and cassette tapes and 8-track tapes. We all know that, you know, albums came before 8-tracks and then you get cassette tapes. But there's some periods where they overlap. So you might still, you know, I think Mark still drives an old truck that has an 8-track <laughs> tape in it, you know. <laughs> and everybody is using other, you know. Got a vinyl yeah, recorder. Yeah, digital. <laughs> but we know those shift. We, we can look at any type of things within material culture. Clothing. We can tell clothing from the 80s versus the 90s. And same thing in the ancient world. The pottery shifts, but there's some times where there's some overlap. And there's still people in the 90s wearing clothes from the 80s. and so. Some of these sites might still retain a tradition from an earlier decade or or earlier century. And so that's why I say all of a sudden regionalism, we realize that there's a lot more regions. If you look at the recent Pottery Bible, you know, uh, Gittin, the three-volume work, it's going to be four volumes. Uh, When we went to school, we just had the one Bible, Ruth Amirat. And the Pottery was just, well, there's northern forms and there's southern forms. And now with the Neil 3 Volume 1, you go like, well, okay, there's the Jezreel Valley, there's the northern coastal forms, there's the southern coastal forms, there's the Shrelau forms. And also we realize, okay, if we're going to start studying pottery, we have to start studying it within its larger context. And that's just because of the explosion of Biblical archaeology. We have so many sites now that we're able to uh, refine our material cultures. But back then in the 80s, 90s, it was very simplified. So the debate went, you know, is it ninth century or 10th century? Yeah. And Finkstein went and changed everything to the ninth century. People said, no, no, I'm keeping it in the 8th century. And now, I mean, with the past 20 years, we have a lot more ninth century sites now where we're able to even refine it. And now it's just we're more looking at um, variations of you know, the pottery forms versus absence or presence of a type.
1: It's a shame they didn't wake up in the ninth century and say, Oh guys, it's the ninth century, we gotta get rid of this tenth century stuff. <laughs> yeah. Would <laughs> make your job yeah. a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> but I understand it and feel free to correct it. But the this affects the gates because if the pottery associated with the gate actually dates not to the tenth century, but the ninth century, if Finkelstein's view is correct, or if you subscribe to it or whatever, then it's not a Solomonic gate
2: at all. And that's where it Kind of comes full circle for us, right? Yes, and so once you change the pottery, then you can change Yadin's dating of the gate to the ninth. He has to move it up from the tenth century to the ninth century. Uh, same thing with the Solomonic gates at Gezer. It's like, well, how do we know it's Solomon? Maybe it's later, and so that's where all of a sudden the debate and the low chronology has had everybody, you know, reevaluating their their architecture. So then the ones in the the gates in the north are like Omri or Ahab or
1: someone like that. Right. That's how I understand it. Yeah.
2: And then another thing in the debate that I'm sure we're going to get to is state development, because these are massive building projects. And so that's why we always said, well, this is Solomon's. You need some type of king to have forced labor to build a fortification system, to build a gate system to build other palaces and, you know, storerooms, et cetera. And then the debate became, if we move these gates and their tripartite buildings and other things associated with them to the ninth century, it means there really wasn't a centralized authority in the 10th century. And then that's where you get to what well, David was just a small chiefdom. Or David, yeah, he might've been a king, but he didn't initiate centralized authority, and then you get into the whole various theories. Like, well, then just the South became a kingdom, while North became a kingdom first, and then you know this is the debate that's going on within you know state development within the ancient Near East.
0: So there's so many connections here. So let me let me just back up for one second for the the viewers and just kind of paint the picture a bit more broadly, and then you can let me let me know what you think. So Finkelstein comes along with his low chronology in kind of the, the 90s and says, hey, at this time it, in the field of archaeology, we have what traditionally has been identified as 10th century material culture we can identify based on some of Yudin's work and other work at that time. We've got clear 8th century pottery, which we can connect now to the excavations from Lakish because Usishkin fixed the, the stratigraphy there and we knew which level was associated with Sennacherib's destruction in 701. So we've got good 8th century kind of anchors. And then we know what 7th century pottery looks like as well, because that leads into the Babylonian destruction also kind of typified at Lakish. But the gap that we had back then was, was the ninth century. What was, what was the anchor, historically speaking, that would allow us to peg the material culture to that century and establish what ceramic forms look like, and it was missing. And so Finkelstein saw connections between Samaria and Megiddo, and then Jezreel as well, and said, Hey, actually all the things that we've been calling 10th century have a lot of parallels with these sites that we would now date to the 9th century. Ironically, based on biblical descriptions of the Northern Kingdom, which he kind of always kind of rails against others for doing, but this was one of the main theses behind the lowering of it. And all of a sudden, things in the 10th century get bumped down to the 9th century, which then actually connected with some of his other work where he was lowering the arrival date of the Philistines as well from a couple hundred years earlier. And everything gets shifted down. And here then we have this whole new framework that all of a sudden removes these grand structures, the gates in particular, and some palaces from say, Gazer, Hazor, and Megiddo, less potentially maybe Hatsor. Those now get removed from the days of Solomon, which were understood in that time to be the markers of political presence and state formation, that you know, if you have a state, obviously you're building big things, and of course the Bible tells us Solomon built things, so obviously we connect the text to the archaeology, and we see the gates are being built, boom, everything is easy and simple, but then this is called into question. Does that sound pretty pretty fair so far? Yes. Yes. And then the issue then becomes, okay, Yeah, as you said, it ties into state formation and then ultimately our interpretation of the biblical text and the reality of w- what does a kingdom of David look like? What does a kingdom of Solomon look like? And what are the connections to the archaeological record, which for multiple generations, we've understood them to be one thing. Now do we have to rethink this?
2: Yes. And so I think now, even as we start excavating most, more gates, we're realizing that, you know, it's a little bit more complex. Um, David didn't say, you build this type of gate. And then Solomon, his son, said, no, nope, I'm going to change it.
0: Oh, Dad, I want six
2: chambers, not four chambers, Dad. Come on. <laughs> yes. <you know. laughs> and it's the Kermit Kayafa excavations. So now we have an earlier site that dates to David, and they have a four-chambered gate there. And it's sort of like, well, wait, four-chamber gates are supposed to be in the ninth century, not the 10th century. And then other, it's just like, wait, some Philistines have six-chamber gates. This is an (laughs) Israelite gate, What you know. And then casemate walls and gates, we find a lot in Transjordan. And so all of a sudden we're saying like, okay, this is every king, every polity, every, you know, uh, emerging secondary state kind of said like, look, if I want to build something, I want to use this type of material. Oh, I'm gonna build it this way. Of the Ashlers, this is a, something that comes from Phoenicia where everybody's using ashlar masonry. Well Solomon also uses it. So it's not necessarily like Ashler masonry represents Solomon. It's like no Ashler masonry represents if you want to let the people know that you are somebody important and you're building something nice. and we find this at the at the Gezer gate and some of the things. the nicer stuff they build with Ashler's, and the stuff that you don't see, they don't use the ashlars. Same thing with our houses. We have a nice front door, but the back door is all a screen door, and it's all you know old because it's like this is what people see, so we put the nice door in the front of our house, and then all of our other doors are, are not as nice. And so this is what these kings are doing. They're building these nice structures. Some of them are to represent power or whatever. So they're not necessarily chronological now. Now it's just like okay, four chamber gate can mean this was a smaller city. They only needed four chambers, and so it, it's it's shifting our thinking now. And so that's also not just the the ceramic chronology of dating them, but realizing that there's not re- necessarily this pattern of architecture that shifts.
0: And, and I think that's a really good point that you bring out. That you know, since some of this early work, yes, we have found X number of similar chambered gates and casement walls, and some of these. These markers of "quote unquote" Israelite presence might not be so Israelite, but probably, and you know, you could uh, interested for your thoughts on this. It's just the, the form of the gates is more so uh, a reflection of of social structure and kind of, I mean, practical needs and concerns. But then also the the function of the gate, how are they used socially? I mean, we know from the biblical text that elders meet there. You hear you have legal cases being held there. It's kind of like the marketplace. We see in the archaeology that some have watering troughs for animals that are being brought in and out of the the, the, uh, the city. And so they're not just a, a functional thing for defenses only, but they're actually a multifunctional type of structure that serve many purposes for the society. And it makes a lot more sense than if you have similar social structures throughout the Southern Levant, that you're going to have similar kinds of architecture.
2: Yeah, and you bring up an interesting point in terms of What's the function of these gates? Why are you building a six-chambered gate? And actually, Yadin, you know, he's a military man, and we have they're connected to fortifications. So it was always interpreted as a defensive structure. And, and it is, I mean, you want to be able to close up the gate when the enemy comes, so, you know, it's a defensive structure there. But it's also the entrance to the city. And as he said in the biblical period, they start to reflect different things. Earlier on, these chambers, everybody thought, "Well, this is where the guards, the soldiers were." They're in these chambers. You have other theories. Ken um, Trout came up and said, "This is where the um, chariots were." These little chambers are where you put the horses, and you you know um, you hook up the chariot to the horse.
0: Like a speedy, speedy entry in entry or exit out of the city in case there is a f- attack. Yes, or something. yes.
2: Now, we know that doesn't work. I mean, they, they don't fit in the horses don't fit okay, in. So you might how big are the chambers? Y- y- you know? y- yes, they. you know, Um it, it looks like, you know, we've seen horse races, you know, and they're in those the little chambers, and they blow the whistle, you know, the, the horn and they, the horses take off. It's just like, but that doesn't happen in these chambered gates. And even from the biblical period, we, we know mostly if they have messengers, they're exchanging horses. And it's probably down outside the city gate where they're coming in, getting the messenger, getting a fresh horse, uh, moving on, you know, so it's not necessarily the gate. And then everybody's coming in. Like you said, it's a marketplace. And as we look at the biblical text, we start to see that, that there's a lot going on. The gate probably opens up to the plaza or the marketplace. We know when Absalom wanted to overthrow David, he would sit in the city gate and win the hearts of the people. So, sometimes in Proverbs, we see there's judgment at the gates. So, we'd be like, well, this is probably where you had the priests or the judges settling disputes, property disputes between villagers like that, or some type of, you know, functions in terms of, you know, um, paying taxes, ties to the king, etc. cetera, were occurring at these gates. So, they become multifunctional, as he said. And so, even as archaeologists, we're realizing, like, okay, wait, when well, we take the the historical texts we added to the function, these are, you know, multifunctional. So it doesn't mean if you have a gate, you have a fortification. It means you have a city. You know? yeah. So if we kind of sort of
1: think about the to chronology again for a second and go back to Kiri- kiribit Kayafa, and you mentioned the fourth four chamber gates had previously been thought to be 8th century, right? And now they're 10th it's kind of like it all cuts both ways because Finkelstein wants to move the pottery down, but now the four chambered gates have come up. So, so this has been a great summary. What's your view at the moment on where we should actually date these? Do you think Solomonic still works or are there too many questions overall?
2: Good point. I, I think they should be dated based on the material culture. Mm-hmm. So the chambers don't mean anything. It, it still comes back to the pottery and the fines, And so I'm quite comfortable at Gezer. We have enough data to say this connects to the 10th century. It was reused in the 9th century. Um, We have a building connected to it. Uh, And so the irony is HUC, David didn't find much pottery in the gate. Hmm. And part of that is because McAllister already excavated it. And so we kind of have to look at what we call Solomon's Palace, but this large administrative building. That's built next to the gate that connects it, and that's how we're how we're dating it. Same thing if Finkelstein wants to redate the Megiddo gate, I have no problem with that. You know, I don't agree with his interpretations based on the pottery, mm-hmm. but but it it doesn't say that Solomon didn't build that gate because you have a series of gates there, and it's just like okay, one is contemporary with with Solomon. As archaeologists, we can argue which one Solomon built,
0: you know. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really good point you bring out because if you actually look at the, the wording in First Kings nine, where it talks about Solomon quote unquote building Megiddo, Hatzor, Gezer, and, and a few other sites as well, it doesn't say what he built. The Hebrew is pretty vague. It just says yeah. Bana, he built something or he rebuilt something. So it, it was up to Yadin to make the connection based on what he was seeing in the archaeology to say, oh, this is what he was building. But Maybe he built I don't know a falafel stand or something. I you know maybe it wasn't the city gate. Uh, maybe it was. I mean, there's good reason to you
2: know, think. But when Sam and I went together, like kind of like the first day, Sam goes like, "Steve, what if we prove that the date doesn't date to Solomon? You're getting your money. You're Southern Baptist. You're getting money from Dr. Patterson. Is this going <laughs> to hurt you? Are you going to lose your funding?" And I laughed at him. I said, "I go." No, the the Bible doesn't say Solomon built a six-chambered gate. You know. <laughs> I go, it just says he built these cities. Now, if you say Solomon was an historical figure and we proved that, I go, that I would have an issue with that. That'd be a problem for me, you know. I go, but I don't care where the gate dates to. I go, that's where we're here. It, it doesn't say Solomon built it. It, you know. I go, it was a good intuitive reconstruction that Yadin did. And I think there's some value to that. That's what we're all doing. We're trying to reconstruct biblical history uh, based on the architecture and the forms we find. But no, there's no central, you know, checklist where Solomon said, this is 10th century. Here's what I have to use. And the 9th century, people came and said, no, we have to use this. Kings did what they wanted, <laughs> and they're all different. Yeah, it's, it's such a good point that we sometimes are guilty, I think, of not reading the Bible carefully
1: enough. And I like how you worded that, Yet yeah, that Yadin had intuitively read it, and it's a solid theory. But it's not like the verse says. And he built the six chambered gates at Gezer and Megiddo, and the four chambered one at at Kaffa. He didn't build that one. And he put a Starbucks at Kirbet El Right, right? Like it's not specific, so we should be yeah. careful. <laughs> It'd be great if it was specific. Yeah. It's like who's the pharaoh of the Exodus? Oh, that's Pharaoh, you yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah,
0: and I, th- I think this is you know this gets to the bigger issue then of what you had kind of mentioned earlier with with state formation. On the one hand we have the biblical portrayal of the development of a kingdom of israel under saul david solomon and then it splits and then you have the archaeology of the iron age 1 and iron 2a and the question is how do you how do the two play together and what does that look like and for the longest time we've we've come to the archaeology probably and to the text i think as well with a certain kind of mindset that is still coming out of The enlightenment period i think and kind of a renaissance period that informs our perception of what things should look like what a kingdom is what a king should do what it means when a king builds something we have these grand ideas but sometimes maybe we need to bring this all down to biblical proportions you know biblical proportions aren't these massive epic things that are beyond belief but it's actually far more conscripted and more limited and and that's okay, at least as far as I'm concerned. And it sounds like you're okay with that too. And you know, when we think about attributing these gates at, say, Gezer, which would be the Stratum 8 gate or Hatzor or or Megiddo, maybe he built these gates. Maybe he didn't build those gates. What if he didn't build any gates at all? What do you think about that?
2: Oh, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I mean, I'm, <laughs> not, I'm quite confident he built a gate because every city needs a gate. So it's <laughs> kind of like... Um, but yeah, whether it's six chambered, whether it's just an opening, it doesn't matter. I think the biblical text is saying that it's given us an idea of the extent of the kingdom or the influence of the kingdom. And so he's picking up, and these are three key sites that guard key avenues coming into the land, which is what I'm, you know, at Gezer, we're on the border. And so a lot of my work is I'm talking about the border of the kingdom. So we have, at Gezer Stratum 8, we have the Solomani Gate. It's destroyed. And then we have domestic buildings built on top of the public buildings. And it looks like Gezer is no longer an Israelite city. And we, in the biblical text, we have Rehoboam building fortifications. And with the Shishak destruction, it looks like it, it contracts. So I'm interested in borders. And I'm looking at it like as a modern... 21st century person, where's the line of David's border and Solomon's kingdom? And we're, we're modern Westerners. We like to draw a line on a map that this is where it is. And it's just like, I don't think people, there was no, you know, if I step over this line, I have to show my passport to the Philistines because <laughs> I'm in a different, you know, territory. I think it's more tribes or groups of people. And so the tribes that lived in the Arlon Valley, their allegiance went to David and Solomon. And so they expanded their territory there. And so now I'm looking at like, okay, where did people live? Because it, when we read the biblical text, even when um, after Saul, when it was divided, it was Abner that brought the ten tribes. So in one day, the ten tribes decided we're going to come under David's authority. But it wasn't the boundary. It wasn't like David inherited that territory. It was these tribes deciding we're going to be part of David's kingdom. And that's how the kingdom grew. And I think when we read the biblical text, we see this underneath it. And so it's not these clean lines. It's this group of people are now aligned with this group. And archaeology is showing that, especially in the Shfei law between the Philistines and the Israelites, some villages all of a sudden said like, God oh, we're pro, we lean toward the Philistines and we see more Philistine pottery. And then all of a sudden, the next generation, oh, we're pro Judah. We look like Judite pottery, and it looks like they're quite comfortable going back and forth. People always ask me, I'm Mexican American, and they always ask me, "When did your family come to America?" And I say, "We didn't come to America. America came to us. <laughs> they lived in Chihuahua and El Paso on the on the border, and our family just lived on both sides. And one day." You know, Texas decided, okay, we're going to join the Union. And then the border shifted. And so all of a sudden, it just became part of America. And that line, so everybody that lived on that on that side became Americans. The other ones stayed Mexican. And I think ancient world's like that, too, at some point. And so as archaeologists, we're trying to find these lines in the sand. And it doesn't work that way. It's, it's more complex. There's no, not a straight, you know. <laughs> line i'm not sure if the philistines knew like okay are we in david's territory are we in philistine territory it's not like everybody met at the gate and then they debated and took a vote (laughs) yes you know and so even our concept of the of davidic state shifts at least mine i'm like it's not this nice political line drawn in the sand these markers
0: no it's it's good i think you bring out some really good points and i concur with everything you're saying and the way i always like to think of it and would tell students is you know when you want to conceptualize kind of david's kingdom and most kingdoms actually in the ancient near east is it's more along the lines of say the godfather and less so along the lines of the modern empires or states today or countries today with with firm borders that have bureaucracies that have you know all these officials things get done on a more personal level and there's often gray lines between everything so it's not a a distinct area here and one thing that we know now from the northern levant is that some some kings own cities inside the territory of other kings and so it's not like you have a firm boundary that delineates your area from theirs because they kind of overlap and they they go together and like you said sometimes they they just shift allegiance that happens pretty regularly what we know and so everything has become far more complex in one regard but it i think allows us to move away from some of the the kind of dogmatic interpretations of the archaeology that that lead us into some problems, such as even the low chronology of, well, it has to be, the pottery has to be ninth century. No, it has to be 10th century. Actually, as we know now, the pottery is kind of both centuries anyway, but how are we connecting the, the expression of political power to uh, a biblical text. And that doesn't have to be the way we've always thought it is.
1: Even somewhere in thinking about this as the goofy Egyptologist in the room, even like in Egypt where you think, okay, they, they do all these things that mark borders because they'll put up a stela, right? Or like Moses I campaigns all the way to the Euphrates and brags about it. But no one actually takes seriously that that's the actual border of all the territory he controls, So when they do things that you may think kind of help you figure out, oh, here's the line. You're like, "Mm, not really. And so there's differences in in what even controlling a territory looks like within any given empire or state. And I think that just, if that's true of the big guns like Egypt, it's got to be even more true of the more tribally affiliated groups.
0: Now, Steve, I want to switch tack here for a second. So we've been talking about, you know, the the archaeology and the ceramics. What is the role then? Obviously, the ceramics haven't necessarily provided a smoking gun answer to kind of resolve the whole low chronology or modified conventional chronology or traditional chronology. What is the role then of, say, radiocarbon and some of more of the exact science methods? And has that been beneficial in your own work at, at Gezer in kind of adding, shedding light or refining the chronology?
2: Yes. I, I do think, you know, um, C14 is is useful. It's another tool in our chronological, you know, interpretations, but, you know, you get people that would date stuff and be different. Currently now with C14, they're saying, okay, it's nice to have them in one area. For example, like if you take a C14 sample on the north of a towel and you take it on the south of the towel. there's enough variation in the environment that that's not the best. So now they'd like to take it like within a stratified section. You have all the C14. So our site has been very good for that because as I said, we were, we we're just digging in one area on the you know central southern portion of the site. So all of our C14 dates are pretty much overlapping in terms of um, architecture, in terms of phases. And so we do have a good C14 sequence. And uh, one of the things is you know, I mentioned after we have the Shishak destruction and then, you know, 10th century destruction. And then we have this domestic structures built on top. It looks like they lose the city. They still keep the casemate wall, the, the gate there, but it's not a, it might not even be Judean. And they're not four room houses. They're different style of house. And we always, and we have a major destruction for that period. So we always called it the ninth century. Because if we have the Shishak destruction, nine twenty-five, give or take, well, the next city has to be destroyed in the ninth century, and we knew at um, Taosafi they had the big Armenian destruction, you know, Haziao destruction. And we go well. This has to be Haziao. For Haziao to get to um, Goth, he has to go through Gezer. So this is our Haziao destruction, and so we tend to just call it the Haziao destruction. The pottery looks similar to our 10th century pottery. And we go like, well, yeah, that's because they just built right on top of it. It's, you know, the same people. And our C-14 dates, that's also a 10th century level. So we actually have three different cities that date to the 10th century. And I won't get into our earlier one, or you know. But it's like, all of a sudden, that shifted our thinking. We go like, well, this isn't Hazio. And the irony is, um, the person working on our C-14 goes like, well, that, that just blew away your theory. Are you going to get upset with that? And you know, I go like, no, that that was just a, a reconstruction. I thought it was Hazia. It's just like, well, who's big enough to conquer Gezer? I go, it, it doesn't change history. That that just highlights it. But it strengthens our Shishak for C-14 dates because we have one, another 10th century one. So it's like it we have a tighter um, window it so we actually have good dates um we're waiting for this article to come out it's going through revision we've submitted it to a, a major journal and it's going to be our big you know gezer c14 analysis showing all of our datum points we we've revealed in some articles or, already but we think you know that's what you asked me what's like change it's like well that had a major influence And it also helps with our pottery. It's just like, okay, it's pretty close. So this is a a short window of time. Now, I'm not going to redate all the country based on Gezer. It just means at Gezer, we have another destruction in the 10th century. So after Shishak, you know, and we do have some biblical accounts for some fighting there between the north and the Philistines. And Gezer became a smaller city at that point. But it does help in terms of ceramic chronology and C fourteen dating, and so our C fourteen dates are earlier than uh, Taosafi C fourteen dates of so the Haziao destruction of the ninth century, and so it, it just opens up the a window of of a, a, a more fuller history of what's going on. It kind of gives you a window of interpretation
1: too, like you don't need to go any later than this because it won't fit the C fourteen, and that helps you shrink it
2: down. Right? Yes. Yes.
0: And it's great too. I think the you know one really important point that you highlight in all of that, too, is that you have this sequence because like you said, sometimes we build these theories on one radiocarbon date or a date from or dates from multiple places at the site and correlating them into one meaningful whole is really challenging. And so to have all the pieces from one area and a sequence of them across time makes radiocarbon, or I should say gives radiocarbon dating a greater resolution I would say because you know for those uh, listeners that don't know kind of the intricacies of radiocarbon dating it's a statistical method that will give you a date range you know, two different date ranges say 90% your dates are going to fall within range 1 and 66% your dates are going to fall in the more limited date range 2 and archaeologists usually focus just on that more limited date range even though the the chance of it actually being right is only 66% as opposed to using the 90 95% accuracy but when you have a sequence it kind of allows you to bring that down a bit and to figure out even between what is the statistical likelihood that this is this is accurate and it really drives that up
2: and yeah it's like anything the more data you have the more refinement we have you know same thing like i mentioned pottery we have a lot more data we have better refinement on Using our pottery data, and we can even talk about regional influences. And same thing with all the C14 dates. And we, we now are getting um, archaeomagnetism data. And that's also going to be another a method to tighten our, our chronology. Yeah, as archaeologists are always looking
0: to tighten the chronology, because that's going to allow us a greater accuracy or uh, ability, perhaps, shall we say, of connecting historic events in some instances to the archaeological record. Whereas sometimes with the current technology and ability today, it's, there still is the ambiguity there and we can't, we we don't have that smoking gun. So yeah, like you said, archaeomagnetism is going to be huge for doing that. And, And I'm sure, you know, there, there was an article recently that looked at a whole lot of archaeomagnetic results from sites around the country. And they're able to clearly show what was kind of, Pre-Aramean destructions at the at certain archaeological sites, i.e., tenth century, perhaps Shishak, perhaps something else. Aramean destructions from the ninth century, Assyrian destructions from the eighth century, and even a Babylonian destruction from the seventh century or sixth or century. And so, you yeah, know, this is a, a technology that hopefully more and more archaeologists are going to be implementing.
1: All right. Well, we have a tradition around here before we let our guests go. We need a funny story or two from the field, and I know you've got the.
2: 30 years to draw on, so no pressure. I'll keep it within topic since we're talking about Iron Age gates and the Solomonic gates. I'll, I'll give you a story of, of our gate. In the process, w- when you apply for a license, in, at least in Israel, you apply to the Israel Antiquities Authority. So we apply for a license from the Antiquities Authority, and they're the ones that grant it as a foreign institute to you know excavate and you know, all the parameters with that. In the process, Gezer became a national monument because of the Solomonic six-chambered gate. So the Knesset voted on this, Gezer being a national monument. Now that Gezer is a national monument, it becomes a national park. So now I have to apply for a license with the national park also since they own the land. And so now I have two national park and the, you know, reshut, the Israel Antiquities Authority. They're each telling me what I can do, what I can't do. National Park, you can't put toilets on the site. They're chemical. We don't want anything, you know, off the site. You can't drive on the site. This is a national monument, et cetera, et cetera. And there is this tree growing in the Solomonic Six-Chamber Gate. And the archaeologist comes and says, this is a national monument. Remove that tree. It's going to destroy the Solomonic Gate. The National Park person, who's a tree hugger, cousin <laughs> says you cannot destroy any, you know, foliage on the site. That tree is in the National Park. You can't cut it down. And so I'm sitting there going like, OK, I have one government agency telling me get rid of it by tomorrow. And Owen said "If you get rid of it, you lose your license. And so I go like. You know, I'm an archaeologist. I go like there are plenty of trees. We can go plant ten trees, you know. <laughs> the one you know we destroy here. But this is destroying the Solomon Gate. And um Which we only have the one here I guess. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um I don't know what happened, but the tree's not there. So that's you know <laughs> it disappeared, huh? The, yeah, it was you know, um <laughs> We assume it might have been one of our Israeli guys because they're like, well, if somebody's going to get in trouble, I'd rather have an Israeli say he did it instead of an American coming to their country and, you know, cutting down a tree. So uh, now when you go visit the site of and I hope all your listeners have come come visit the site and look at the nice six-chambered gate there. They're going to see a nice gate without any trees on them. Yeah, you just never know what's going to come up in our world for <laughs> yes. you. Well, Steve, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun.
0: I'm sure the listeners have enjoyed it as well. I uh, Really appreciate you coming on. And I do believe that you have the distinct honor of being the first multi appearance guest on the podcast. So Mark, if you want to fashion Steve some sort of little trophy, I'm sure he would really really like that it's probably really yeah I'll, I'll
1: get our assistant marcella on that yeah, <laughs> yeah. well great i'll, I'll, I'll treasure it'll be that better if she makes I'll it i'll treasure <laughs> that trinket and it'll be filed away with all my other
0: trinkets. maybe we could find some of the, the wood from that tree that disappeared from gezer and make it out of that
1: <laughs> yeah. and I'll, I'll let the guinness book of world records know as well
2: oh <laughs> <laughs> well, god i'm glad i made history in your guys podcast here <laughs> <laughs> perfect
0: well on script listeners uh sorry biblical world listeners until next time keep on digging You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.